world where information, true and false, is coming at us from all directions, how can teachers and students learn what to believe? As journalists like to say, facts are stubborn things. Um, but I also think that we think about mis and disinformation and fact checking in the wrong way. I see this a lot on social media where if someone debunks a viral rumor that resonates with your positions, your values, that uh, your response is to sort of push back against the fact check and defend the misinformation as though debunking it somehow hurts your political position. I, I argue the opposite. I think mis and disinformation aims to exploit us. Peter Adams is the Senior Vice President for Research and Design at the News Literacy Project. I'm Sheila Solomon with River 360, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago media. We're recording this via Zoom and broadcasting it live on YouTube. Peter, what's the News Literacy Project got to do with fake news, misinformation, and disinformation? For those folks who aren't familiar with the News Literacy Project, we're a, a national education nonprofit organization that provides training and resources to help students and the public. Now, that's one change in our mission that we made in recent years, uh, evaluate the credibility of the information they encounter in their daily lives. And we're really um, building a movement to create a stronger democracy by, by helping people be better informed, uh, more engaged and more empowered uh, individuals. Um, so, it, you know, an answer to your question has a lot to do with with fake news and mis and disinformation. We want people to, to recognize the impact that false information has uh, to have a, a good and strong idea of what credible information uh, involves, uh, the role it plays in their lives, the role the, the press plays in democracy. Um, and, you know, working again with with educators uh, to reach students all over the country to, to do that work. How have media contributed to any of these issues? That's a good question. Um, certainly, um, news media haven't always handled um, mis and disinformation or false narratives uh, responsibly or well. Um, it's, it's not easy work. Uh, there are lots of shades of gray, right, between something that's entirely false uh, and something that is verified and, and fact-based. Uh, so in between those polls, you have lots of conversations you can have about um, productive, responsible framing, providing the public with enough context, making sure that everyone's information needs are represented and, and met, uh, and of course, not doing any harm uh, uh, or distorting any issues uh, in coverage um, by news media as well. So, you know, when it comes to, to, to those kinds of conversations, we have lessons and resources that help students understand, you know, what the aspirational standards of quality journalism are, what some of the debates in journalism uh, are today without getting too inside baseball, but we try to help help make those accessible for teachers and students to, to discuss in the classroom um, and to understand the ways in which the practice of journalism is changing and the news business is, uh, is changing as well. Tell us a little more about that. For example, what are some of those lessons or programs that the News Literacy Project, which we also sometimes called NLP, uh -huh. um, put in place to help combat what's become a lack of trust of the news media? Yeah, so I think there are two, two sides of that, right? I think for on the one hand, we want to make sure that students um, and the public have an accurate understanding of the way newsrooms operate. So some of the things that people cite in public opinion surveys uh, by uh, Knight and Gallup and, and the Pew Research Center and others uh, about why they distrust news media actually aren't 
aren't accurate reflections of the way newsrooms actually operate. So there's a disconnect, right, between the way journalism actually happens and the way the public thinks it happens that drives some of that trust conversation. And then there are legitimate things that have damaged trust over time um, that also have to be dealt with. So we work kind of on both of those fronts, trying to help students understand, you know, the, uh, get an accurate understanding of the way newsrooms work and also to understand, you know, what uh, the process of verification involves um, what fairness really looks like um, in news coverage and to reflect on that and think through that for themselves um, to understand, uh, you know, what a quality sourcing looks like in a news report, what some of the considerations around inclusive sourcing would be, um, and then to, to recognize that. So we have um, some lessons on our Checkology virtual classroom. So we have a free online learning portal that lives at checkology.org that teachers all over the country can use at no cost. And we have a few lessons that, that help draw those things into focus. One called practicing quality journalism that puts students in a, in a scenario and they're put in the shoes of a rookie reporter and they have to make some really key decisions um, as they gather information and report it to the public and verify it. Uh, they have to choose between early tweets to release. They have to choose between headlines and lead paragraphs and lead photos. Um, and some of those options include loaded language, for example, that wouldn't be fair, or they include an error of fact. So they have to sort through that and get a sense of just how challenging the, the practice of journalism can be. Um, we also have a lesson about uh, news media bias, sort of helping students think through, first of all, what, uh, what bias is and some of the different types of bias that can affect coverage, whether that's uh, a demographic bias or a bias toward trying to be neutral or false, false balance. Um, or you know, a bias toward big stories, and then some of the forms that bias can take, whether it's loaded language or story selection uh, and so on. So it, it presents them with a kind of um, framework for thinking about news media bias. So those are just a couple of the pieces on Checkology. We also have professional development trainings and webinars for the public about some of these same issues as well. Uh, and then some infographics and, and quicker stuff on our website that, that folks can check out at newslit.org. How do the changing business models for media companies play into all of this? That's a challenge. You know, we're trying to help students understand first the role that, that the press has played historically in democracy, the watchdog role that it has played as, as kind of the fourth estate, um, uh, and then to get a clear picture of what's happening to uh, the news business and the news ecosystem um, including, you know, the, the shrinking number of especially local news organizations um, and the impact that it can have on communities when they lose a local paper or they lose um, local news coverage um, and the effect just on communities' lives, um, individual family members' lives, but also the, the greater impact on democracy. Um, and, you know, we try to do that again in a way that some of this stuff is... is a little bit abstract and difficult for students, especially younger students to, to understand. So we try to make that a little more uh, immediate. Um, we have a, a, a great classroom guide to accompany a, a documentary film called Storm Lake that uh, you can access on our website. Uh, we are doing another push for that uh, this fall for educators all across the country. Again, at no cost, we've, we've purchased licenses for the film and have a, a 60 minute cut of the film hosted on a special site for educators. That's a great way to get into that issue, I think, um, because it can be kind of abstract, but if you help students sort of work through some of the scenes of that film and then use our classroom guide in, in tandem with that, 
you can kind of help surface some of those some of those issues. Why and when did NLP get started in Chicago? Uh, in Chicago in 2009, um, NLP was founded in 2008 um, by a former Los Angeles Times investigative reporter named Alan C. Miller, who um, actually visited his daughter's middle school classroom to talk about what he did as a journalist and why it mattered, and uh, figured out that the students there didn't really understand what um, distinguished standards-based journalism from tweets and posts uh, from people online that they didn't know, right? From user-generated content, things they came across on YouTube. Uh, and that alarmed him. And so Alan um, started sketching out an idea for uh, an organization that um, could bring journalists to classrooms uh, across the country and have them talk about what they did, but also bring the larger lessons um, that he tried to, to sort of convey to that, to that group of students and, you know, left that middle school class classroom feeling like he had really had an impact, but also was alarmed at the same time at the, the lack of understanding of, of uh, what, what standards-based news sources do and the function they play uh, in our lives and in democracy. So that was the, the impetus for him founding NLP. And then shortly after NLP was founded, we got a, a seed grant from the McCormick Foundation here in Chicago that uh, launched our Chicago program um, in those days. I was part of the interview team who chose Peter in 2009 for his first role at the News Literacy Project. Why did uh, the offices get started here in Chicago? What was it about Chicago that perhaps made that happen? Yeah, so there was, again, the, 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 the McCormick Foundation here in Chicago was deeply invested, not just in supporting journalism uh, and journalism education, but also in civics and civic education. And they were funding that work primarily in Chicago, but also across the country. Um, and so they immediately saw the, the impact there, right, uh, for, for both of their uh, two of their major funding um, initiatives. Uh, and so I think that seed money had Alan sort of stretched to Chicago, maybe before he was, he was entirely there, but he saw the, the rationale. And we also had a very willing partner in Chicago public schools. So in those days, uh, in the first, I don't know, six or seven years of NLP's life, um, we had on the ground in class, uh, in-person programming with staff members in, in three of our cities. So we launched right away in Washington, DC, where Alan is based in New York City, and then very quickly in Chicago with the McCormick funding. And the model in those days was to do a, a drop-in unit uh, in schools, middle schools and high schools across those cities where uh, an NLP staffer would partner with a teacher and design a drop-in unit. Sometimes that was a two or three week contiguous unit. And sometimes it was News Literacy Fridays throughout a semester. Uh, and we would teach or co-teach lesson plans with that teacher and then schedule journalist volunteers in that market to come into the classroom physically and work with the students and teach a news literacy lesson. So not really career day, but have a, have a learning objective and actually talk to students about their work and give students a task. And the, the learning outcomes were very strong and the feedback from school partners was very strong in that program, um, but ultimately we couldn't scale it. So that's where we, we moved online uh, with Checkology. Um, but, but Chicago has always been kind of NLP's laboratory in our showcase. That's what Alan likes to, likes to call it. 
um, because we tried out a lot of new things here. We just had the right mix of of uh, uh, funders, a very um, active group of, of local news organizations who were very supportive of our mission, individual journalist volunteers who were very generous with their time, uh, a very supportive school district and really strong school partners. Uh, and that all just sort of crystallized here in, in Chicago for NLP. So how have things evolved here in Chicago or how are they evolving? We piloted our digital unit here in Chicago before Checkology was built. And we use that uh, pilot and the, the learning metrics from that pilot uh, to raise money to build Checkology. So without that, you know, we, we, we would be in a very different place today. We also created a new kind of teacher professional development here in Chicago that we call News Lit Camps, which involve a, a news organization and a school district coming together to, to do a day-long professional development event. We did our very first one here in Chicago. It was sort of the brainchild of, of uh, uh, who was then the head of social studies at Chicago Public Schools, Heather Van Benthuizen. She's still with the district in another role. And she and I were chatting and she had been a classroom teacher that I worked with years ago and um, just sort of struck on this idea. What if we had teachers you know, come into a newsroom for a day of, of sessions and conversations with educators uh, um, and, and journalists? And um, we did the first one at the Chicago Sun-Times uh, back in 2018, I think. And now our News Lit Camp program is, is a big initiative of ours. We do, we do 10 to 12 a year in newsrooms all across the country. We have worked to... Um, provide educators who use Checkology with the same opportunity to explore a directory of journalist volunteers uh, in Checkology. So if you're a registered educator uh, and a Checkology user, you can browse a directory of journalist volunteers that now lives in Checkology. So you can actually filter by um, areas of expertise. You can filter by location. If you're looking for someone to physically come in your classroom, Checkology can help you set that up. If we have a volunteer within a radius of your school, um, we can send that request. And then the system sends a request to those journalist volunteers. So if any educators are listening and they're interested in something like that, say check out checkology.org uh, and register for an account. And if journalists are listening and they're interested in something like that, you should reach out to the NLP team or reach out to me and I can direct you um, to get added to that directory because it's still, you know, very important work. I mean, we've seen over the years um, a certain kind of magic happen when journalists and educators connect, right? I mean, they both, first of all, have really difficult jobs that way too many people think are easy, right? Um, journalists and teachers both tend to be underpaid uh, for what they do. They both play a vital civic function in democracy. And lately, they've become, you know, real political targets, but historically uh, have become political targets sort of cyclically. I think we're in a moment now where both journalists and educators are the focus of a lot of partisan rancor, and they're being dragged into debates that, that unfairly, um, and their work is being characterized unfairly. So I think when you get educators and journalists together, a certain kind of magic happens. And when students meet actual people who produce the news. It sort of disrupts their notion of the media, right? And they actually get to see that, you know, journalists are um, parents and they go to the grocery store and they live their lives and they're doing their best to get things right and to be fair. And of course, um, news coverage is imperfect. 
um, but it really helps them get a clearer picture and a more immediate sense of the role that journalists play and um, gives them a different appreciation, I think, for, for uh, news. How did NLP tackle COVID and vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, so the whole, this last two, three years has just been one thing after the other, um, <laughs> as everyone knows. Um, and, and COVID and, and vaccines have been a big part of that. It wasn't just vaccine hesitancy that COVID brought. You know, COVID brought tons of uh, conspiracy theories. I don't know if you remember the whole film, Your Hospital Movement, where people claimed that this was all being staged somehow or exaggerated to control the population, tapping into, you know, really longstanding and even harmful uh, conspiratorial themes, some of which connect to anti-Semitic and extremist tropes and narratives that date back, you know, decades, if not centuries. Um, and people don't necessarily recognize those things when they encounter a fragment of something like that. Um, but also, you know, uh, disinformation about the vaccines was was big and even is, continues now uh, about the boosters, the queen's death. Uh, every time a public figure passes, you see viral rumors um, asserting that, you know, they had just gotten a booster or something like that, um, which, you know, these baseless sort of ideas that uh, just because we have a booster and people continue to pass away of various causes that that somehow there's a causal link there when there isn't. Um, so it's a really vital um, topic. You know, my team thinks about how to how to choose between the viral rumors that we that we take on as a team and and write about and feature. And um, viral rumors about health are you know among the 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 most immediate um, and urgent um, examples of disinformation that we can tackle because the impact is is direct. How have the Trump and Biden administrations affected the work that you all have been doing? Oh, gosh. Um, I, think, I think 2016, not so much the, the, the Trump administration, but, the, but the, the revelations about the role that the Russians played in 2016 and exactly what they were up to, um, which, which weren't entirely new, but the public just became aware of them, I think, more broadly around 2016. Um, the, internet, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, you know, this uh, operation with, with uh, hundreds of paid trolls who are targeting the U.S. and other, other countries just to exacerbate divisions um, and pose as Trump supporters, pose as uh, progressives and liberals, and to, to sow rancor. Uh, they even organized protests uh, and, you know, established Facebook groups, partisan Facebook groups, and their goal was just to drag Americans apart and to um, uh, uh, increase the, the amount of incivility in our national conversation. And as people became aware of that, I think more attention, uh, they, we got a lot more attention from, from educators across the country who realized that they really need to be preparing students for this uh, from the public and from some funders. So 2016 was an inflection point. And then um, throughout the, the Trump presidency, um, the attacks on the press, um, the uh, um, kind of constant stream of disinformation that, that people were dealing with was something that we had to, to speak to and address even as a nonpartisan organization. Um, and then, you know, the 2020 election disinformation is something that we're still grappling with and, and dealing with the fallout from. We have a new 
2022 election misinformation um, page on our site that we launched last week. We're going to be adding more resources there just to help people recognize some of the some of the disinformation that that experts are expecting to come back for the midterms that we saw um, in 2020. And then you know the, the 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 Biden administration has overseen you know some some ongoing situations that have thrown off misinformation uh, as well. So so a lot of these conversations are just just continuing. Um, uh, immigration misinformation, the situation at our border uh, continues to to generate mis and disinformation. Um, so it's it's uh, it's not. Uh, it's not that our our work has has stopped or even slowed down since since uh, Biden got into office. It's, it's still a still a challenge. So that lack of trust in authority and media are continuing to to play into everything that you all are addressing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those trends were already happening, um, you know, before the country was this polarized? I mean, we've been slowly polarizing for the last 15, 20 years. If you look at, um, you know, public research data, Pew Research Center has some great data where they ask um, people the same questions year over year over year, and you can watch the, the median answer um, polarize on, on the left and right. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, media distrust has been around for as long as there's been media. Um, but I think it's it's more acute now. You've seen more physical attacks on the press. Uh, you saw physical threats against the press um, at, at protests across the country in the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter protests and others. Um, you've seen it in January 6th uh, at political rallies. Um, and so I think it's a, a, a deep concern. Uh, the, the, the press freedom ranking of the United States was never... Uh, the top in the world. That's something that we we work with students a lot. A lot of our students think that the U.S. is not only the, the they think that the, the U.S. is the top uh, when it comes to press freedoms, but they also think we're the only country in the world with with a free press. Um, and in fact, you know, the U.S. in in uh, the global press freedom rankings by Reporters Without Borders usually rates in the 40s or 50s. And we've steadily slipped over the last several years, I think, in, in large part because of the political climate and because of these these threats and animosity and hostility against the press. What about people who aren't students, who aren't educators, who aren't even parents or grandparents and aren't going to come into contact with an education system and the News Literacy Project? How are you trying to reach them or how are you reaching them? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, in 2018, we sort of formally expanded our, our mission to include the public. So the non-educator, uh, non-student public, um, and started to produce things to, to better serve them. Um, one of those things was a, a mobile app that we called Informable that, uh, that you can download in the app store that sort of establishes some, some uh, newsletter um, habits of mind and dispositions, just distinguishing between a fact-based statement and an opinion-based statement, for example, um, or... Uh, distinguishing between straight news and opinion journalism, which is a, a, a key disposition. Uh, and then more infographics and quizzes on our website. We have a newsletter for the public called Get Smart About News that comes out once a week that gives people a, a concise summary of relevant headlines for, for news literacy reflection um, about everything from press freedoms and the First Amendment to social media content moderation to the practice of journalism 
um, to you know the, the the loss of local news outlets, um, and then a digest of viral rumors that are circulating to help folks recognize that when it hits their feeds. And um, we are getting ready to launch uh, a new platform on that front in the coming weeks. So in early October, we'll have a new misinformation viral rumor platform that uh, the public can use to uh, both learn about mis and disinformation and learn how to recognize it and to debunk it on their own and to, uh, to warn away their friends and family. So those are a few of the pieces. And then we also have public training. So webinars through AARP and other organizations to, uh, to help reach the public. And we're expanding our team on that front as well. So um, I think that the, a good way to stay up with that is to just follow the News Literacy Project on Twitter and social media. Check out our website um, because there's lots of, lots of uh, exciting stuff happening there for the public. Um, and we're at a, a really exciting point uh, in, in this uh, mission to, to build a movement um, to just sort of put, put facts back at the center of the national conversation and, and to help people um, uh, avoid being exploited by, by falsehoods. Peter, what are your closing thoughts? I think again, you know, we're, we're at a, a, a precarious moment where um, I think we've, we've uh, made a lot of uh, issues in our national conversation, partisan conversations that shouldn't be. Um, I think the, the efficacy and safety of vaccines should not be a political conversation. The, the uh, safety of, of genetically modified foods, the, the integrity of our elections, certainly. Uh, and I think we can't get swept up in, in the polarization so much that we forget that, and that we forget that, uh, as journalists like to say, facts are stubborn things, um, and, but that we should pay attention to them. Um, but I also think that we think about mis and disinformation and fact-checking in the wrong way. I see this a lot on social media, where if someone debunks a viral rumor that um, resonates with your beliefs, right? That resonates with your, your positions, your values, that uh, your response is to sort of push back against the fact check and defend the misinformation as though, you know, debunking it somehow hurts your, your political position. I, I argue the opposite. I think mis and disinformation aims to exploit us, right? So, you know, if you're on the left, misinformation wants to exploit your your passionate desire for uh, a more equitable society, for example. Um, if you're on the right, maybe it attacks your patriotism and your religious faith uh, and uses that as a wedge to, to, to insert a false belief and get you to amplify that to your network, to your friends and family. Uh, and no one wants to be deceived and no one is helped by having you know false information inserted into their worldview. Uh, and so, I think that uh, would be my closing thought, just to recognize misinformation for what it is and the threat it poses, you know, not just to uh, our lives and to the lives of those we, we share it with, but to, uh, to democracy uh, at a really crucial point uh, for, our, for our country. Well, my closing thoughts include some of that. Building critical thinking skills has never been more urgent. And the News Literacy Project, uh, has been enhancing the understanding of journalism in a democracy, as well as helping students to build some life skills. But even more than that, it's also opening um, itself to everyone in the community. This is not just something for students and educators, it's for all of us. 
My guest on this edition of Chicago Media Talks, recorded via Zoom and broadcast on YouTube September 19, 2022, has been Peter Adams, Senior Vice President of Research and Design for the News Literacy Project. You can reach him on Twitter at Peter D underscore Adams, and you can reach me at Sheila at rivet360.com. For producers Jesse Patin and Janine Harston, and everyone at Rivet360, thanks for listening to Chicago Media Talks. <laughs>